The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The man seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, Jesus, or said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. In the NFL playoffs tonight, the Kansas City Chiefs face off against the Buffalo Bills. Uh, For you who are football fans, you know this is a rematch of the NFL playoffs from a couple of years ago uh, when the Bills scored a touchdown at the very end of the game to defeat the Kansas City Chiefs. With 13 seconds left, the game was over. At least everyone thought that until under the leadership of quarterback Patrick Mahomes, the Chiefs came out onto the field, they marched down, and were able to tie the game at the very end, send it to overtime, where they eventually went on to victory. Now, unless you're a Bills fan, and if you are, my condolences, uh, we, we all love stories like this. Sports fans or not, we love stories like this, stories of the unlikeliest victories being snatched at the last moment from the jaws of defeat. And in our passage this morning, we see this drama playing out on an infinitely more important and cosmic scale than the NFL playoffs. When Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane, it it looks like the game is over. The season is over. His life is over. His fans aren't just filing out of the stadium. They're, They're actually fleeing his presence, ripping off their Jesus jersey, saying, we don't want anything to do with this loser. But of course, though, it looks like the end as he's being led in chains out of the garden. It's not. There's still time on the clock. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. This is the final week in Jesus' life. In fact, at this point, he he only has hours to live. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, as I said, where he has just come face to face with the curse of God for sin, represented by this cup that we thought about last week, the, the cup of suffering and wrath. And remember, we, we, we thought about what Spurgeon said. He, he took the cup in both hands and drank damnation dry. He staggered before the cup, but he didn't finally shrink from it. He resolved to drink it and to drain it so there wouldn't be a single drop left for us, for you, if you're trusting in him. Here's what I think is the main idea of the next scene 
uh, the scene we're going to look at this morning, Mark 14, 30, uh, 43 to 52. Jesus came to suffer, not to fight. And even when we fail him, he will never fail us. Jesus came to suffer, not to fight. And even when we fail him, he will never fail us. We'll think about that as we step through this scene in three points. First, ready to backstab. We'll see that in verses 43 to 46. Second, ready to fight. That's verses 47 to 50. And third, ready to run. That's verses 51 and 52. Ready to backstab, ready to fight, ready to run. First, ready to backstab. Look again at verses 41 and 42. So again, we're in Mark 14. Look at verses 41 and 42 just for context. This was the end of last week's passage. Returning the third time, Jesus said to them, Peter, James, and John, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. And then verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Sometimes we imagine this uh, arresting party as a kind of random mob, at least I do. I kind of think of them, you know, flickering torchlight, this random mob that's been sort of lathered up from the streets and they've come into the garden. But no, according to this verse, it's actually an official force. These soldiers have been dispatched directly from the temple authorities. In other words, this is not yet political oppression from the Romans. This is religious oppression from the Jews, and specifically their leaders, the Jewish leaders who have colluded with Judas to finally exterminate this so-called Messiah. And by this time on Thursday evening, it's grown dark outside. They're coming under the cover of night because, as we've already learned in Mark's gospel, these mighty religious leaders are scaredy cats. They're afraid, in particular, of the reaction of the crowds. And the scene grows even darker as we see the depth of Judas's treachery. Verse 44, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Clearly, this detachment of soldiers is expecting resistance. And these instructions from Judas indicate that he too fears Jesus is going to put up a fight. He's going to resist, perhaps violently or at the very least try to flee. How little, how little he understands his master's plan. Verse 45, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. I find it so interesting and insidious 
that of all the gestures Judas could have picked for identifying Jesus, he picked a kiss. A social greeting that was common, but intimate. It's how rabbis and their faithful disciples greeted one another. But according to some historians, it actually was the kind of thing that only the rabbi could initiate. So for Judas to stroll up to Jesus and plant a kiss on his cheek would have been a kind of calculated insult. What's chilling is that Judas is not yet regretful. He's not second-guessing himself. He's not hesitating. He's determined. Verse 45, look at it carefully. It doesn't just read, going to Jesus, Judas said. It reads, going at once to Jesus. It's the word for straight away, immediately. It's a massively significant word in Mark's gospel. In fact, of all this word's occurrences in the whole New Testament, 80% are in Mark's gospel. And that's because Mark wants to show us something. And he has showed us something on page after page after page. He's shown us that Jesus, his central character, is in a hurry to do people good. We've seen it repeatedly. Chapter 1, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the leper. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Chapter 2. The paralytic rose and immediately picked up his bed. Chapter 5, the bleeding woman thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. Chapter 5 again, he took Jairus' daughter by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. Chapter 6, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat and the wind ceased. Chapter 10, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now fast forward to chapter 14 in this fateful Thursday night, and what do we see? That same little word. Do you see what's going on? The same speed and dispatch with which Jesus pursued people to help them, Judas is pursuing Jesus to betray him. This is a clash of two urgent missions, two men in a hurry, the mission of Jesus and the mission of Judas. Only one of the two, only one of the men is going to be led away in chains. But it's actually not the one whose mission is about to, yet, to end. Do you remember that powerful warning in Psalm 2? That famous royal psalm, that, that warning against arrogant authorities. Do you remember the final verse about Yahweh's king? Kiss the son. Kiss the son, 
lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Judas's little kiss is a sinister inversion of those words, kiss the son, because he's not doing so as the psalmist demands, as the psalmist warns. Judas is not doing so as an act, as an expression of reverent fear or trust. Friends, there are so many different ways to rebel against the God who made you. You can reject him like the temple leaders did, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees. You can reject him by opposing him and trapping him and mocking him, or you can reject him like Judas by showing public affection for him. This means you can be rejecting Jesus while singing songs to him, while participating in prayers to him, while sitting in a church service listening to a sermon about him. One of my friends put it so well, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss so we'd know that someone's public affection for Jesus may not be telling the whole story. Oh friend, beware of play acting. Beware of kissing the son in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. The Lord Jesus is tender, he's patient, he's compassionate, but he is not impressed by those who just kind of hang around him quietly or respect him mildly or even who approach him tenderly. What he wants is you to approach him trustingly. Don't flatter yourself, friend, that you are on the side of good, the side of right, the side of virtue, the side of justice, if you are not truly on the side of Jesus. Judas had convinced himself that he was doing somehow what was right and good, but he was dead wrong. Turn away from the self-centered treachery in your heart. We all have a little Judas inside of us. Turn away from that self-centered treachery that the Bible calls sin and humbly, reverently, trustingly kiss the Son in the proper way. Interestingly, now, now that Judas has done his deed, now that he's planted his kiss, he fades into the background and isn't heard from again. Point two, ready to fight. Ready to fight. Verse 47, then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. From other gospel accounts, we learn more about this scene. Peter is the one who draws the sword. The name of the guy who loses his ear is Malchus. Jesus heals the ear and says, put the swords away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And by the way, don't you think that if I wanted to, I could call down a legion of angels for my father and he would send them at a moment's notice to rescue me? But interestingly, Mark isn't interested in these details. That's not what he's concerned about. He's not denying them. He's not hiding them. It's just not his particular focus in recounting this scene. And because he doesn't linger here, we're not going to either. But, but even here, I just want you to not miss the fact that Jesus is in no way commending, in no way commending this impulsive act of violence. 
Well, brothers and sisters, we need to be on guard, always on guard against a kind of rash street fighter mindset as the people of Christ. This is not to say that that we let others walk all over us, but it is to say that our kingdom is just simply not of this world, and our battle is not against human opposition. Don't take my word for it. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. See, there's a sense in which our uh, in a sense in which we are not so much at war with our unbelieving neighbors and in our polarized age of outrage, everyone wants to just get you angrier and angrier with other people. But we are not finally at war with our unbelieving neighbors. We are at war for them. As Trip Lee reminded us a couple weeks ago, vengeance is simply not an option for a Christian. We are not to respond to evil with evil but rather to overcome evil with good. Which means we should beware a kind of pugilistic fighting spirit. It may make us feel kind of valiant in the moment. I'm a truth teller. I I stand for truth. I defend truth. But we should beware of succumbing to this kind of spiritual street fighter mentality as if our ultimate enemy is flesh and blood. And we should also beware of dramatic displays of piety or loyalty to Jesus that are not rooted in wisdom. He is not impressed with our swords. He doesn't need our swords. He wants our lives. He wants our integrity. He wants our courage. He wants simply our love. Well, in verse 48, he he levels a rebuke against the soldiers. Am I leading a rebellion? Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus is aghast at the manner of the arrest. They're acting like he's some armed and dangerous insurrectionist or criminal they'll have to subdue with force. He's like, do you still not realize who I am or what I'm about? You've seen me in public over and over again, doing good, healing the sick, holding court with your temple leaders, and yet you slink into the garden at night to treat me like a common thief? You should have known you wouldn't need weapons to capture me. But again, this isn't because he's not in control. It's because he is. He may be a victim physically, a captive physically, but in the deepest sense, he's in charge of the entire situation. What does he mean here at the end of verse 49 when he says, but the scriptures must be fulfilled? I mean, I don't see any quotes from the Old Testament. So what scriptures does he have in mind? Well, one of the background passages is probably Psalm 55, our scripture reading earlier, where King David gives voice 
to feeling betrayed. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. My companion attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. His talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. Or Isaiah 53, which features phrases like, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And the word for oppression is the same word for arrest. And then it goes on to say, by oppression, arrest, and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Which is a haunting phrase, given what we read in Mark's next verse, verse 50. Then everyone deserted him and fled. everyone. Just as he predicted, the disciples fall to pieces. They scatter to save their own skin. As one commentator put it, these brief words in verse 50 drive home, as it were, with hammer blows, the failure of the disciples without exception and the total forsakenness of Jesus. You'd think that after all they'd seen and experienced over the course of three unforgettable years with him, they'd think no matter what trouble we face, no matter what comes our way, if we're going to remember anything, if we're going to do anything, it's that we are going to stick with this guy. We are going to stick to this guy. But instead, they flee like cockroaches when you flip on the lights, thinking only of themselves, leaving the one who's never done them wrong utterly alone. If a stranger came up to you on the street later today and, and said, hey, I don't know you or uh, anything about you, but I just wanted you to know I despise you and will never be your friend, you would be spooked. Uh, it would be a, a, a weird and unsettling interaction, uh, but you would not be crushed because they don't know you. But if your classmate or, or your, your neighbor come, came up to you and said, hey, I want nothing to do with you ever again. That would hurt more. But if one of your closest companions or your spouse said to you, I want nothing to do with you, I'm out forever, well, that's going to upend your entire world. The closer the relationship, the deeper the hurt. The closer the relationship, the deeper the hurt. Jesus is not being abandoned by a group of Pharisees or Sadducees. He's not even being abandoned by some anonymous faces and fans of his in the crowd. He's being abandoned by his very closest friends. Some of you have faced this kind of rejection, actually, in your life. This stings to think about. And if you ever do face this kind of rejection, desertion, just remember that as disorienting and painful as it'll feel, you will not be facing anything that Jesus Christ doesn't know firsthand. And this is not cold comfort. Hear me clearly. This is not the equivalent 
of you sharing your struggle or sadness or sense of loss and abandonment and someone else one-upping you to say, well, I've had it worse. Get this story. Check out this. No, this is the king of glory looking you in the eye and saying, I know what you're going through. Personally, I've been there and I'm not just going to send positive thoughts. I'm not just going to send good vibes your way from heaven to earth. I'm going to send my presence, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who will be with you even when you feel alone, even to the end of the age. Jesus is the greatest friend, the greatest friend you could ever have. In fact, he's such a good friend to undeserving people that he was mocked for it. He was mocked for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, people just like us. And shortly before his death, he said to his disciples, who were about to fail him, about to abandon him in his loneliest hour, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Indeed, no one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Even when we're pathetic friends to one another, and worst of all, pathetic friends to Jesus, he remains always and forever the perfect friend to us. Josh Horner shared this story last summer, but it's too fitting not to, not to share it again. In, in the 1800s, there was a Scottish missionary named John Patton who took the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific to a, a tribe of cannibals who had never heard, violent cannibals who had never heard the name of Jesus. And at one point, he climbs up a tree to protect himself and to hide as hundreds of angry natives are hounding him and chasing him, hunting him for his life. He's all alone in the bush. Listen to his reflection on that experience. Quote, the hours I spent there, up in the tree, the hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did the Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. And, and then I love this in his autobiography. He then turns his gaze and directly addresses the reader. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Or as we sometimes sing here in those beautiful words, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything 
to God in prayer? Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield you. You can find a solace there. Well, the story of the arrest here in the garden ends on an admittedly odd note. I'll give it its own point. Point number three, ready to run. Ready to run. Verse 51, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Some believe uh, Mark is actually referring to himself. There's no evidence for that. What is clear is he includes this for a reason. To us, it might seem like a bizarrely anticlimactic ending to the scene, but Mark is up to something in this description. He's underscoring, I think, just how thoroughly abandoned Jesus was. This follower of his was more willing to run home naked and undignified than remain associated with the guy in chains. Jesus has been totally, completely deserted. Think about it. He came into Gethsemane with nothing but his friends. He's leaving Gethsemane with nothing but his enemies. Again, we can't know exactly why Mark doesn't name Peter as the one who cuts off Malchus's ear or name this guy who runs away. But I wonder if his purpose was so that we would put ourselves in the story. Lest we think, lest we, we have the relief of seeing the names of the, the guilty ones, the names of the offenders, lest we think, oh, what? What idiotic responses. Fight and flight. You know, Peter takes up a sword in an act of foolish revenge. I never would have done that. This guy flees Jesus as a coward. I never would have done that. Maybe Mark is omitting those details, those names, keeping it deliberately vague so that we wouldn't let ourselves so easily off the hook. Because every one of us is tempted to respond wrongly when persecution comes, when there is a cost to being associated with Jesus. And depending on your temperament, you may be inclined to fight or to flee, but as the friends of Jesus, we are called to stay with him and trust his plan, even when it seems all hope is lost, when it seems that the game is over. I mean, what's the very last promise we make to one another in our church covenant? And through life, whatever opposition may come, whatever opposition may come, we will seek to live for the glory of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We shouldn't long for opposition. We shouldn't pursue it or provoke it, but we also shouldn't be shocked when it arrives. We shouldn't effectively freak out and run away naked. As my friend Max Stiles points out, many Christians around the world fear the raised fist. Many of us in America fear the raised eyebrow. Beloved, if we want to be an attractive, 
contrast community here in Richmond among our neighbors whom we love, then we're, we're going to need to stand firm. And if we have any hope of standing firm, we are going to need to stand together. Christian, you need a whole church in order to help you not resort to fight or flight when the day of opposition comes, whatever form it takes. Suffering with Jesus is, is not just an honor and a privilege. It, it, it's also the pathway to glory as Paul says in Romans 8, if we're God's children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering. See, that's what these followers were unwilling to do. They wanted his glory, not his sufferings. But Romans 8 said, it says, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Tim Keller suggests that by having this man flee naked from the garden, that Mark is intending to remind us of another garden. See, way back in Eden, people were given a test and they failed. And so they were stripped naked and fled in shame. And here, centuries later, in the fullness of time, in the garden of Gethsemane, there's another test. And guess what's happening? People are failing cutting off ears, running away. Here's even a guy stripped naked, fleeing in shame. But wait a minute, Keller says. Something is different this time. Something is different in this garden. Because in the middle of all this failing, there actually is one human being who's passing the test. While everyone else scatters because they're afraid of the world's sword, Jesus stands, even though he's actually facing something far worse. When Adam and Eve had been driven from the Garden of Eden, do you remember what they looked back and saw at the entrance? A sword held by a mighty angel flashing this way and that to block the way back in. In other words, to get back into the garden, to re-enter the presence of a holy God, anyone after them would have to pass under that sword of God's justice. And no one throughout history has ever managed it. No one has ever managed to go under that sword and live to tell about it. Except for one. And when you realize this, when you realize that the sword is no longer hovering above your head because it already fell on Jesus and you've repented of your sin and put your trust in him, then you can enjoy the forgiveness of all your sins, even if you've betrayed him, even if you've wrongly fought for him, even if you've scattered and left him. And you can step into a dark and uncertain future. Frankly, as the Bible says elsewhere, laughing at the days to come because you know the one in control of them all. Well, as we conclude, it's interesting that this showdown with the soldiers, for all of its drama and intrigue and suspense, this is actually not the real showdown. I mean, it might seem like the dramatic moment that everything's been building toward it, and it may, in a movie, be the final scene. But it's, in this movie, you look at the cursor and you realize there, there's still 40 minutes left. What else is, is going to happen? What could be bigger than this? But of course, this is just one more stop on the long journey 
to the cross. In verse 48, when Jesus says, am I leading a rebellion? He's using the word for thief. Are you coming at me, treating me as if I were just a common thief? And it's the same word that's going to show up in the next chapter as he's crucified in between two of them. This man who has never committed a single infraction, a single sin in his life against the law of God, who has lived with the highest honor, is going to be treated as the lowest of criminals. Am I leading a rebellion? Am I, am I some kind of revolutionary, Jesus asks the soldiers. And there's a sense in which he could say, yes, I am a revolutionary. Yes, I am leading a rebellion. It's just not your kind. I'm here to launch a rebellion against the chains of sin and death. My revolution, he says to them, in effect, my revolution is one where you can take me with clubs and, and swords, but you cannot stop me with clubs and swords. Oh, friends, the one who never once failed his father, who never forsook his friends, who never called down those legions of angels who were at his disposal to come and rescue him, is going to go on in a matter of hours to die forgiving his enemies, enemies just like us, so that we could become his friends. To put it bluntly, the only thing Jesus Christ has ever deserted, has ever abandoned, is a tomb. And because he abandoned his tomb, you can step into this next week knowing for sure that he will never, ever abandon you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for sending your son to live and suffer and be arrested and let off like some common criminal on our behalf. Lord, even to die and exhaust your wrath that was due to our sin so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have the hope of eternal life. Lord, guard us from responding wrongly to you. Guard us from betrayal. Guard us from wrongly fighting for you. And guard us from cowardly fleeing from you. And we thank you that even when we fail you, even when we abandon you, you will never abandon us. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.